to to begin with. Are, are there any, any any questions? Anybody have anything on their mind as a result of what we talked about last night? Yes, Adam. Um, this is from the reading. It was one of the lines I think it was from the book you're quoting okay. um, at the beginning, and it, it said that it was talking about the expectations we have of the right teachers. Is, sorry, what? It was talking about <coughs> the expectations we have of the right yes, teachers. Yes, yes. I was saying one of them, and it did. It wasn't clear if it was a false expectation. But that we would expect them not to be phobic or neurotic. Yes. Which I would expect. <laughs> What's that? I would expect that. Yes, um, you would. Yeah. Especially the neuro like that the neuroticism. So is yeah. it, were they talking was this thinking in terms of the continuum that we we're talking about? In terms of the continuum, yes. You see yeah, uh, uh, oh I'm sorry, I repeat the question. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Yes, the, the, in terms of uh, uh, what the expectations we might have of an enlightened being, and one of the things that we were told that people commonly expect is that they would be, uh, most will assume enlightened beings are free from neurosis, phobias, and obsessions, and you say, yes, I would expect that. Uh, but if they aren't, is that to do with the, the progression, the stages of enlightenment? And yes, of course it is. Uh, because when somebody reaches the first stage of enlightenment, uh, uh, becomes a stream mentor, at that point they will not magically lose uh, all of the accumulated, uh, deeply ingrained patterns in their psyche. So if they are a person who has certain kinds of phobias or certain kinds of neurosis, uh, now they're their reaction to those phobias and those neuroses when they manifest, you can expect those to change. And you can expect as they progress on this path that those will be uh, will be overcome or will be uh, transformed. But it would be foolish to, accept, to expect that any person on, on reaching the first stage of enlightenment is, is no longer subject to those, because they, they in fact are. Now, our hunts, we can expect that, that they will have overcome phobias, and uh, probably their uh, uh, neurosis and obsessions will now be uh, in, in more of the lines of, of some uh, quirky, but perhaps rather cute or amusing personality characteristics, <laughs> which they have retained, uh, rather than being something that creates suffering for them or problems for other people. Okay? Yeah. Good. Other questions? Okay. Well, what I want to look into, one I said look into, uh, starting this morning, is uh, uh, more deeply into the uh, Buddhist the definitions of uh, enlightened beings and their characteristics. So, I will start off here, and if you follow me, uh, it's on page six, with a description, a general description of a Buddha, how we can expect a Buddha to be. Okay? We expect a Buddha to have a complete freedom from suffering and a happiness that is entirely unaffected by circumstances. That's 
pretty attractive, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, would you like to sign up? <laughs> and, and, and indeed, that, as we saw last night, that is that is the those are the terms in which the Buddha himself really defined what his path was about, and the goal of his path was to was the absolute freedom from suffering. Uh, and of course, suffering, dissatisfaction, the opposite of that is uh, satisfaction, fulfillment, happiness. And so uh, the only way that you can have freedom from suffering and, uh, and happiness that is not subject to being lost is if the source is the source of this is not from external factors which are constantly changing, uh, unreliable, and uh, can't be clung to. If they're clung to at all, then you're bound to lose your happiness and once more be cast into some form of suffering and dissatisfaction. A complete absence of craving, every form of desire and aversion having been completely uprooted, And uh, when we say craving, every form of desire and aversion, there is, of course, the craving for for things and for uh, pleasurable experiences. And there's all kinds of things that we can desire. Uh, and we can have aversion to all kinds of things of the world, too, of, of pain and illness and of loss and so forth. So it is the, uh, the absence of that kind of desire, but there is, uh, it goes beyond that, too, to another kind of, uh, of craving, which is described as a craving for existence and a craving for non-existence. Uh, and a craving for existence is... Uh, it's the the, the, uh, the craving to be, to experience this kind of separate uh, of being the experiencer and the doer and that continu- continuity of that. The craving for non-existence, of course, is uh, it's like aversion to, to pain or uh, loss or other forms of suffering, but it's also in its most uh, extreme form the craving for Annihilation, the the the, the desire to uh, well, not to exist, you know. destruction, annihilation, elimination of, 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 the, of the self. Of the self, yeah, of the self. Somebody who is uh, uh, extremely depressed. And, oh, oh, okay. And, uh, okay, I got it. I got it. Yeah. Makes a commitment to a suicide, or or somebody who feels that life uh, itself is uh, life is just so bad that uh, their wish is to uh, not to die and go to heaven, not to be reborn, not for any of these things. They just want total annihilation and into uh, and into it all. That's a kind of craving too. So. But a Buddha is free of all of these kinds of craving because uh, they are they're free from the uh, roots of, of those craving which are uh, which lie in the uh, 
sense of being, a separate self. Unlimited compassion for others that imbues their earthly existence with an unassailable meaning and purpose. This is an important thing, because I don't know how many times people have asked the question, okay, if a Buddha has no desires, why do we get up in the morning? Why continue? Why will? But the reason is that uh, a Buddha has meaning and purpose, because as long as there are suffering beings, there are those that Buddha can help. And it's the, uh, it's the, it's that compassion that replaces the other kinds of passion that get the rest of us out of bed in the morning. <laughs> uh, wisdom born of profound insight into the true nature of reality, wisdom that has completely dispelled all ignorance. So that's what you would expect to see in a Buddha, uh, rather than some of these other things we might expect. Somebody that goes around uh, with this radiant glow on them and uh, you know, uh, knows what we're going to do tomorrow and tells us the answers to all of our questions. And that. I mean, those expectations of Buddha, set those aside, take this description here. Um, And that's that's a Buddha, that's not going to be a stream entrant, it's not going to be a once-returner, it's not going to be a non-returner. Although with each of these stages, in very clearly defined ways, they're moving towards becoming this Buddha. So... In Buddhism, enlightenment is uh, uh, the, the progress of enlightenment through these stages is defined according to the progressive overcoming of ten fetters, and they are listed here. The stream entrant overcomes the first three of these fetters personality view, which is the belief in a personal self or soul. Skeptical doubt, which is doubt about the validity of the teachings, or the possibility of enlightenment, or the reality of the enlightened state. And how many of you have skeptical doubt? Good. And how many of you that didn't put your hands up have skeptical doubt too? You didn't have <laughs> And the third is wrongful adherence to rites, rituals, and ceremonies. Uh, it's uh, uh, attachment to the mistaken beliefs regarding the power and efficacy of rules, rites, and rituals. So let's talk about these things here um, and, and how they come about. A personality view. Now, The, the belief in a personal self or a soul. Now, some of you may not believe in an eternal soul, but you, nevertheless, you have. Uh, I, 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 I have no danger of misrepresenting any of you by saying that you do have a belief in your personal self. Because it's something that comes with standard equipment. To be a human being with a human mind, you're going to have that. It's 
part of how we're made. It's a necessary part of how we're made. And it is part idea, part conceptual, and it's part feeling. It has two these two parts to it. One part of it, the feeling part, is you just you have this uh, very primal, very direct sense of being a an entity, a separate self. <coughs> and in addition to that, you have a conceptually elaborated idea of who you are. And that's linked to the feeling of self. You can explain the feeling of self in terms of these ideas based on, you know, you can remember your past experiences and the characteristics you've manifested and the things you've said and done and how you react to things and what you like and don't like. And not suggesting that you have ever necessarily sat down and, and tried to describe yourself but you do it automatically all of the time. Is you you generate your mind generates a concept concept of who you are, a concept of self to go with this feeling, this inherent feeling or sense of being yourself, and so it has these two parts. Um, they perform a very important purpose. When I say that they're they're there naturally, I know you have them. Uh, what I mean is that let's take this inherent sense of self as compared to the conceptual idea of self. There are organisms who don't have large brains like we do with large frontal cortexes with a lot of capacity for abstract thought. And for that matter, seem not to be able to learn very much at all. But if you examine their behavior, they act very much as though they have this inherent sense of self. Right? You agree with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they do. Because animals with nervous systems, sentient beings, have developed this and you know that that's why that's why we exist. We come from billions of years of evolution of beings that that uh, from the time they were born or hatched very quickly developed this inherent sense of self and as a result of that they behaved in ways that ensured their survival whether it was just in the simplest form or whether more complex forms like in social organisms they behaved in ways that ensured their survival they behaved in ways that ensured their ability to find a mate and reproduce themselves and depending on the kind of organism they were if they were a kind of organism where what were part of their task was to nurture their young and ensure their survival, they behaved in ways that ensured that their offspring survived. So the inherent sense of self is no trivial thing. It's a very fundamental part of the uh, makeup of sentient beings. It's there and serves a purpose. And I know you all have it. Now, Organisms with bigger brains, capable of learning, uh, analyzing, conceptualizing, the greater degree that capacity is, the more likely there is that they're going to have, along with this inherent sense of self, they're going to have 
some conceptual idea of who they are, you know, and what position that they uh, occupy in terms of their relationships with other organisms will manifest as their idea that this is my territory or this is my mate and this kind of identity or I am the, uh, the uh, alpha male in this pack and it has profound effects on them when a, a younger, stronger male comes up and displaces them. It totally demolishes their maybe, albeit a, a, a primitive sense of uh, a conceptual, a primitive conceptual self, but it gets totally transformed and it can be destructive. Yeah, you know, they often die, right? Uh, so we see the same things that we experience in ourselves. We see them in all kinds of other organisms. We see, oh yes, this is a part of, this is how the system works. This is how beings uh, survive. And this is how, over time, kinds of beings continue to survive. And this is how different kinds of beings uh, are transformed and, and become more successful than others. So this sense of self is, as I said, no trivial thing. It's the belief in it that changes for the stream entrance. They still have an idea of what particular collection of characteristics and experiences uh, belongs to the idea of, uh, of themselves, of their identity. And they still know, you know all of the accoutrements they've acquired, their personal possessions and their job and their relationships. You know, they haven't lost that. But it's a difference in how that's perceived. It's perceived as a, a useful fiction, a functional and useful fiction, rather than something to attach to and defend, to suffer when it, it undergoes some kind of uh, uh, insult or assault. That's the kind of transformation that takes place. They still have very strongly the inherent sense of being self. But they now, they now have a different perspective on that inherent sense of self when it's experienced. Okay? Okay. Is it somewhat like playing a role, realizing that that isn't truly yourself? Well, playing a role, depending on how you mean that, it's it's being able to to function in the world. It's be, it's being able to function in the world, and it's being able to to experience this part of the world that is the body and the mind mm -hmm. without being so terribly attached and vulnerable to what happens to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, what hasn't changed is a lifetime of conditioning and habits, habitual behaviors. So, uh, a, a stream entrant, it doesn't mean that a stream entrant is never going to behave in an egocentric or selfish way. But it means that a stream entrant can always remember 
given the right cues, remember that, oh, well, I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to feel this way anymore. If somebody comes and says something and they find themselves becoming uh, hurt and angry and defensive and things like that, those feelings are all real. All of the mechanisms in their mind to generate those still are active. But at a certain point, rather than it just gets worse and then they do more and and it just keeps snowballing, at some certain point, they can recover the realization that, well, this isn't really the way things are. And they can let go of it. That's the, that's the difference. And, you know, it, it, there patterns of selfish and egocentric behavior will still come up in little ways. But, and part of the job of, uh, of uh, uh, stream management as it actually is for somebody who's on the path to becoming a stream measure, is to, is to be watchful and to recognize those. The difference is uh, between somebody who is not yet a stream measure, who is observing themselves and on guard for manifestations of selfish behavior so that they can make corrections of them, and a stream measure who is doing the same thing, is that the stream entrant has undergone an internal transformation that makes this so much easier to do. That's what the difference is. So, um, got that? All right. Um, skeptical doubt. Now, yes, doubt about the validity of teachings, the possibility of enlightenment, or the reality of the enlightened state. Yes? Would you say that the personality structure is still there then? Oh, yes. Yes, the personality structure is definitely still there, but it's not attached to. It's not believed in in the same way. And the result of that is it's much more easily modified. The, the other thing is that we... And somebody who's not a stream entrant tends to believe that their personality structure is far more rigid and difficult to change than it really is. Well, and in fact, for somebody who's not a stream entrant, it is more difficult to change because they do have, you know, they might think, oh, there's this one thing about myself, why can't I just change that? And they try, and it won't change, it won't budge. That's because it's connected to so many other parts of their identity. And the identity as a whole is attached to in a rigid way. The stream entrant, all these connections are loosened up, and so it makes it easier to make changes. But the fact is that if we look at ourselves and our personal histories, we see that our personality structure has always been subject to change. It's always been plastic. It's just that, uh, and it's just that we, on the one hand, have never systematically or rarely systematically tried to change it, and that whenever we have, we've encountered uh, a lot of resistance and maybe often given up. But we, but circumstances often produce profound changes in personality, and we do recognize that. So personality is changeable. The personality structure can be altered. For a stream entrant, it can be altered more readily. Uh, and, and, and more consciously and deliberately, because there's less attachment to death. Yeah, I know what you mean about thinking, uh, you know, it, it can't change very mm-hmm. easily. 
you do years of meditation and psychotherapy and self-growth work and everything, and you know you just get to respect how strong the structure is. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, the reason I'm here is because I'm sure hoping to catch it. And and it can yes. Uh, it can, but you you have to do a lot of work along the way. You know, and one thing too. I'll keep coming back to this point, uh, at least I, I, I better, I should, because it's so important. The best way to become an enlightened being is to do your best to emulate an enlightened being all the time from the very beginning. That's the best way to do it. So, now, what that doesn't mean and it would really be a big mistake to understand it that way, is that you say, okay, an enlightened being is like this, and then try to force yourself to be like that. Mm -hmm. To say, oh, enlightened beings shouldn't have attachments, so I'm going to force myself not to have attachments. Because you, you can't do that. But you begin by making changes in your personality structure that are going to allow you to achieve this deep transformation where everything gets easier thereafter by making all the changes that you can. By saying that enlightened beings don't use harsh speech. They don't, uh, they don't uh, curse other people out. They don't shout at people. They don't say nasty things. They don't engage in divisive speech. And by doing your best, not to do that. In the case of attachments, for example, you can't make your attachments go away, and you shouldn't try. And you shouldn't criticize yourself or condemn yourself because you have attachments. But what you can do is be aware of them. Ah, it's an attachment. What you can do is say to yourself, can I refrain from acting out of this attachment or not? And if you can, do so. If you can't, you just keep in mind that, okay, that's, that's one of those things that, you know, it's going to be around for a while. But the more you emulate an enlightened being, then the easier it's going to be to become an enlightened being. Because you do, you have to make, you have to make the changes that you can in your personality structure to reach the point where to reach that crucial crossing point beyond which doing so becomes much, much easier. Yeah. It seems that um, um, if you do your very best to emulate what you perceive to be an enlightened being, mm -hmm. the characteristics of an enlightened being, then what you're actually doing is streaming into, I'm not using the same meaning there, but streaming into what already is. That's true, yeah. Because you already, each one of us already is. So if you emulate that, you are, um, we are you're just really connecting with the essence of what you already are, rather than berating yourself. Exactly. Which, which pummels that connection. Mm -hmm. Very well put. Yes. We all have the Buddha nature within us, which is all buried under all of these afflictions and habits and attachments and everything else. And so 
when when we find some of that dirt that can be removed, we should remove it. And some of it is still so strongly stuck on. We know the Buddha nature is under there, so we just need to keep chipping away at it whenever the opportunity presents itself. Yes. It is, it's a streaming into what already is. The obstacle is that the mind believes in its own self, which which it has created. But the truth is that that is a fiction. And because it's a fiction, it is susceptible to being modified. And so, yes, in that sense, too, you're streaming into what already is. If it weren't a fiction, if it were real, if yourself were, in fact, a self-existent entity, if it were a soul, you would be pretty helpless to ever do anything about it. You know, but it's not. It's just a fabrication. And you can work with it. Now the, yes. Can, can I add one more thing? I mean, a, a question to that. Because if we are what we already are, mm-hmm. then does that imply also, and I think I read it somewhere in here also, that things, that things the world, the universe, is as it is? Well, that's for sure. It is it, as it, it is. It is what it is. So um, in terms of the strife and the turmoil in the world, the warring and the, all the rest of it, the avarice and so on. Then, does it follow then that it is as it is, and it and it's, a, I mean that it's. I don't even want to say that it's okay that it is what it is because it's really awful in, in many ways. Yeah. But 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 how does one separate if we are what we already are? Then does it does it is it logical to say that the world is is okay mm-hmm. because it's streaming to what it, it, yeah. it is already is? I mean, yes. I don't know how to divide this out. Uh, you're doing a very good job. Yeah. You see, you have to accept what is because it's insanity not to. I mean, literally. Think about it, okay? You do not have to accept that it will always be that way. Because that would be equally insanity. Nothing stays the same. Everything will change. Absolutely. So, what makes, what is reasonable and sensible from any point of view, enlightened or unenlightened, is to accept what you are in the moment. Because... You, what you are in the moment is the result of past causes and conditions. Mm-hmm. And how much... I, we all know what a ridiculous waste of time it is to think about, well, if only this were different. If only I hadn't done that. If only I'd said this instead. If only, if only, if mm-hmm. only. It's, it's so terrible that we do that. And it's so ridiculous because... What is in the moment is what is in the moment. Accept it. It's not about it being okay or not okay. Okay or not okay is, is judging. That's right. Okay and not okay. If you say it's okay, then you make yourself vulnerable to being attached to it because it is going to change. 
And if you say it's not okay, then you put yourself in the position of not being able to accept what it is, which is going to greatly impair your ability to uh, do anything constructive about the way it is. And the same thing about the world. The way the world is, it's the way that it is right now. That's not the same thing as, you know, say, oh, well, nothing I can do. It's going to always be that way. Because it's not always going to be that way. And you're not always going to be the way you are either. So when you talk about that acceptance and what is in your personal life and what the world is about, is the point when you know it will, or when you believe it will change, where's your point, your entrance, entrance point in being part of that change? In other words, where's the action coming in to say, yes, I accept it and I do something about it as much as I think I can do or mm -hmm. feel do at the moment. Is that then an attachment? Is that then not an acceptance anymore? Well, unless you're a fully enlightened being, it's going to almost certainly involve some degree of attachment, yes. But that's one of the things that you need to be, that's part of accepting yourself the way you are. You know, I can't do, I can't try to do something about the injustices of the world without developing some degree of attachment. Now, that doesn't mean I don't try, but it means that I'm mindful of my attachments and I realize that uh, that those attachments that are, are really only going to get in my way. And that's part of accepting who you are and what you are. But aren't they good attachments? <laughs> are they good attachments? As attachments, those kinds of attachments, you know, it was like you were saying last night. The word attachment, okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, to the you see, if you do something out of love and compassion, we tend to be attached to the outcome. To the degree that we're attached to the outcome, we've set ourselves up for the potential for disappointment. If we can do exactly the same thing without attachment, then not only are we less likely to be disappointed, but it's going to be far easier if things don't turn out to take some further action Attachment does get in the way. It creates problems. But it's going to be there, too. So that's what I mean. Emulate an enlightened being, but don't try to force yourself to be what you're not. I've got attachments? Okay. I'll do what I can. I'll be aware of my attachments. Can you love without attachment? Of course you can love without attachment. But love is such a complex word. We use it in so many different ways. It is not easy to love without attachment because we are such attached beings. But if, if I love my friends, yeah. there is a natural attachment of course. to that. And that's not something I, I, I'd wish to give up. Well, what do you mean by what do you mean by attachment to the friend that you love? Okay. I love Adam. If he dies, I'm going to be real messed up. That's an attachment. It is. And so so it, to to not have any caring, not having <laughs> yeah, it's not going to ruin the whole day, would it? Um, so to not have any caring about what would happen to him would be to not be attached to that. 
And in order to do that, there's the loss of the relationship. Why, or why, why, why is it would not being attached to that be the same as not having any caring about what happens? Why are they the same? I don't know. I, <laughs> that may be something screwed up in my head. I think they come together in our minds. Not be but I don't think they're the same thing and they're not necessarily connected. Okay, can you say it again? So. <laughs> I'm really having trouble with I, this. I'll put it this way. I can care very much what happens to Adam. Okay. But if something happens to Adam and there's, you know, there, there is nothing that I can do about it, if I oh, accept yeah. that, then that's not being attached. But it doesn't mean I don't care about Adam because I care. And if there is anything at all okay. I can do or could do, I would do. Okay, okay. All right. So they don't have to go together. I mean, I don't have to suffer to prove to myself or to you that I care about what happens to you. That's actually not necessary. Mm-hmm. I was talking about that yesterday, about people who want to express their affection for somebody else. And so they don't want to worry about them, to them, which makes that person worry. You know? <laughs> right. That, that's not... People do this all the time. It is a commonly accepted form of expressing affection. I'm going to worry about you and and demonstrate my upsetness about what might happen to you. And it just gets you in the place of being worried and upset or feeling bad because I'm worried and upset. <laughs> no, I hear that. So, yes, these are these are learned social ways that uh, they're part of our nature and they're a part of our social modes of behavior. We can pretend to be really worried about somebody that we don't really care about at all. As a matter of fact, we don't even like them, but it's to our advantage socially to appear to care about them. And so we we know how to create that appearance. We we express concern, right? You know, so. Okay, so, okay, this is good. This, you know, you think about these things and you start to get in there and say, oh, how is it that my mind really works and how is it creating this whole thing? Anyway, and if you do that, you can start to see how you can untangle these things a little bit and disengage from the less wholesome aspects of it to a degree and focus more on the wholesome act. You know, truly caring about somebody is wanting the best for them, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, uh, You remember, I don't remember where it comes from, but I know you've all heard it. If you truly love something, let it go. uh, go. If it comes back, it was yours. If not, it never was. If not, it never was. Yeah. Now, that's such a wonderful thing yeah, to tell that a broken-hearted 23-year-old. <laughs> but on the other hand, we know it's true. Because what we really mean by love is wanting the best, the absolute best for some other being. You know. But most of the time, it has this caveat. Wanting the best for you, as long as I get by what what I want. (laughs) And and if having you is part of that, then 
that doesn't mean letting you go off with somebody else. So, yeah. things in the most effective way. So an enlightened enlightened being absolutely cannot go around fixing all of the things in the sense that an unenlightened being thinks they need to be fixed. An unenlightened being says, my happiness depends on having this and not having to (coughs) do this. And an enlightened being can't it would be a, a total waste of time for an enlightened being to go around trying to give people what they think they need to make them happy and to spare people what they think they need to avoid. Mm-hmm. Right? Instead, what an enlightened being can do is to help other people to become enlightened. And by doing so, free them from the bondage of believing that they have to have this or that they have to avoid that. That's the most important and valuable thing an enlightened person can do. And that is usually, uh, you know, like uh, the, uh, the arahant that was studied, uh, uh, that I mentioned last night, who turned the Rorschach series into a teaching event, mm-hmm. you know. That's basically what you, what you see in enlightened beings, and especially uh, arhats, uh, Buddhas, is that everything they do, virtually every breath they take, is about helping other beings to come out of their delusion and to uh, begin the process of awakening themselves. Yeah. So this is actually the opposite of protection, right? It's the what? The opposite of protecting somebody from their truth. The and opposite of protecting? Protect, yeah, protecting. As you know, we do this all the time. Oh, it will be fine, and you will be oh, whatever, yeah. and things like that. So how do you do that without, um, with compassion? So it doesn't hurt yeah. the other when you, when you, you know, when you say helping the other on the way of looking through delusions. How do you do that without well, um, you? Uh, you have to have uh, a certain amount of skill okay. and wisdom. Okay. An enlightened being wouldn't go around, you know, telling somebody who uh, just got diagnosed with or cancer. Oh, better telling somebody whose child just got diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. Oh, don't worry about yeah. it. It's yeah. empty. There's no yeah. self. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're just attached. I mean, <laughs> that's what's something that, that a, a very uh, uh, naive person who sort of read these things and said, oh, well, that's this, you know, they might do that. It would be very unwise and very unskillful. And unloving. But 
uh, it doesn't mean that you stop doing the things that you do now. It means you may may change the way you do things, or may modify. You may go beyond that. You know, mm-hmm. but it's not excluding these things. Um, I'm just thinking of something. My father's an active alcoholic. He's been one for like 25 years or longer. I don't know. But, you know, he's not, it's not something he's interested in addressing or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And a long time ago, I was talking to a therapist and she was saying, I think I was trying to figure out, well, how should I relate to him? Or what should I do? And so forth. And she said, you know, maybe, you know, she said, I think maybe, maybe all you can do is just love him. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a relief. And she said that. I was like, huh. I could just love him, and I was trying to figure out what does that mean, and it, it kind of meant I didn't really have to do anything, like just <laughs> listen to him, you know, or um, I know there's a fine line there between enabling and, and mm-hmm. so forth, but I don't know, do you have any comments on how to handle mm-hmm. that kind of situation? Well, I don't know the details of that situation, but it is possible for somebody to be an alcoholic and go about it in such a way that they're not really causing a lot of suffering for other people. And it is harmful to, it, it's harmful to the human body to saturate it with alcohol constantly, and it will lead to, to diseases and, and ultimately to death. But the person has to change. And uh, all that you can do for them is, is love them, Always be available if they ever want to change. Uh, always do anything you can to uh, encourage them to make improvements. It's not that different than what you would do with, with anybody else. Now, the, most alcoholics, though, aren't that sort of pristine and, and, and harmless. Alcoholism tends to produce an enormous amount of collateral damage. Um, Enabling is where you pick up the pieces, you repair the damage, you clean up the messes, you, uh, you know, the person does damage to themselves, and you're, you know, that's where enabling is. Enabling is sparing the alcoholic from recognizing and having to deal with the consequences of what they do. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that's the, that's, can you see the line between enabling and, and and loving there? Yeah, he's living in his misery. I mean, he exudes mm-hmm. anger and negativity and, you know, like, for miles. Right. Well, and he, and nobody should go out of their way to spare him the consequences of exuding anger. He should be made aware that this is what you do to other people. Mm-hmm. And this is why other people react to you and treat you the way you do. Because to, to spare him that, that would be enabling. That would be helping him to hide from the truth. But to be able to uh, do that would still be loving. Then that's what you want to do. Yeah, that's helpful. I used to not say, say much. And I think yeah. that was more enabling. And now I do just say, you know, I'm leaving or I'm mm-hmm. not talking to you now. Mm-hmm. something in that he does react to that yeah. and you know all of our enabling comes from our protecting ourselves we don't want we, we enable because it's easier yeah. than doing the opposite
Okay. All right. Yes. It, it, just one last thing. It, it seems like the loving is connected to dependent origination. Loving, dependent, connected to. It seems like the loving in this circumstances like this is very uh, connected to un- a deep understanding of dependent origination. That 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 you're loving someone in a circumstance. You can see that their developmental process, mm-hmm. perhaps, is from the time they were children, perhaps their parents, you know, this, 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 this surging forth throughout a lifetime of circumstances that contributed to this behavior, mm-hmm. to this hatred, hatred uh, you know, this is hatred, this behavior. And, and so when you see an individual in a larger context, there's great fodder for love, in spite of that very damaging behavior. It seems that there's tremendous love possible there. Yes. It doesn't mean you like it. It doesn't mean that it's, it's right and fitting. But in a way, it is right and fitting. I mean, it's a very odd, it's just, it's, there's mm-hmm. a paradox there. Uh, and, 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 you know, isn't it so much like what we first started talking about, accepting things as they are, not not accepting that they can't change, but accepting things as they are and working with that. And in dependent origination, in the links of dependent origination, the key links there are that you can change, or ignorance can be replaced by wisdom. And craving can be overcome, and if you if you work with those those links, that's that's where you can bring about change. But what is is a result of what has been, yeah. and can't be changed. So, and that's you can love what is, go beyond accepting. You can love what is, even in spite of its uh, shortcomings. <laughs>